section twelve of volume one c of history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org recording by cynthia moyer history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight by david hume volume one c section twelve chapter twenty eight part one henry the eighth the numerous enemies whom wolsey's sudden elevation his aspiring character and his haughty deportment had raised him served only to rivet him faster in henry's confidence who valued himself on supporting the choice which he had made and who was incapable of yielding either to the murmurs of the people or to the discontents of the great that artful prelate likewise well acquainted with the king's imperious temper concealed from him the absolute ascendant which he had acquired and while he secretly directed all public councils he ever pretended a blind submission to the will and authority of his master by entering into the king's pleasures he preserved his affection by conducting his business he gratified his indolence and by his unlimited complacence in both capacities he prevented all that jealousy to which his exorbitant acquisitions and his splendid ostentatious train of life should naturally have given birth the archbishopric of york falling vacant by the death of bambridge wolsey was promoted to that see and resigned the bishopric of lincoln besides enjoying the administration of tournay he got possession on easy leases of the revenues of bath worcester and hereford bishoprics filled by italians who were allowed to reside abroad and who were glad to compound for this indulgence by yielding a considerable share of their income he held in commendam the abbey of st albans and many other church preferments he was even allowed to unite with the see of york first that of durham next that of winchester and there seemed to be no end of his acquisitions his further advancement in ecclesiastical dignity served him as a pretense for engrossing still more revenues the pope observing his great influence over the king was desirous of engaging him in his interests and created him a cardinal no churchman under color of exacting respect to religion ever carried to a greater height the state and dignity of that character his train consisted of eight hundred servants of whom many were knights and gentlemen some even of the nobility put their children into his family as a place of education and in order to gain them favor with their patron allowed them to bear offices as his servants 
whoever was distinguished by any art or science paid court to the cardinal and none paid court in vain literature which was then in its infancy found in him a generous patron and both by his public institutions and private bounty he gave encouragement to every branch of erudition not content with this munificence which gained him the approbation of the wise he strove to dazzle the eyes of the populace by the splendour of his equipage and furniture the costly embroidery of his liveries the lustre of his apparel he was the first clergyman in england that wore silk and gold not only on his habit but also on his saddles and the trappings of his horses he caused his cardinal's hat to be borne aloft by a person of rank and when he came to the king's chapel would permit it to be laid on no place but the altar a priest the tallest and most comely he could find carried before him a pillar of silver on whose top was placed a cross but not satisfied with this parade to which he thought himself entitled as cardinal he provided another priest of equal stature and beauty who marched along bearing the cross of york even in the diocese of canterbury contrary to the ancient rule and the agreement between the prelates of these rival sees the people made merry with the cardinal's ostentation and said they were now sensible that one crucifix alone was not sufficient for the expiation of his sins and offences warham chancellor and archbishop of canterbury a man of moderate temper averse to all disputes chose rather to retire from public employment than maintain an unequal contest with the haughty cardinal he resigned his office of chancellor and the great seal was immediately delivered to wolsey if this new accumulation of dignity increased his enemies it also served to exalt his personal character and prove the extent of his capacity a strict administration of justice took place during his enjoyment of this high office and no chancellor ever discovered greater impartiality in his decisions deeper penetration of judgment or more enlarged knowledge of law and equity the duke of norfolk finding the king's money almost entirely exhausted by projects and pleasures while his inclination for expense still continued was glad to resign his office of treasurer and retire from court his rival fox bishop of winchester reaped no advantage from his absence but partly overcome by years and infirmities partly disgusted at the ascendant acquired by wolsey withdrew himself wholly to the care of his diocese the duke of suffolk had also taken offence that the king by the cardinal's persuasion had refused to pay a debt which he had contracted during his residence in france and he thenceforth affected to live in privacy 
these incidents left wolsey to enjoy without a rival the whole power and favor of the king and they put into his hands every kind of authority in vain did fox before his retirement warn the king not to suffer the servant to be greater than his master henry replied that he well knew how to retain all his subjects in obedience but he continued still an unlimited deference in every thing to the directions and counsels of the cardinal the public tranquillity was so well established in england the obedience of the people so entire the general administration of justice by the cardinal's means so exact that no domestic occurrence happened considerable enough to disturb the repose of the king and his minister they might even have dispensed with giving any strict attention to foreign affairs were it possible for men to enjoy any situation in absolute tranquillity or abstain from projects and enterprises however fruitless and unnecessary the will of the late king of scotland who left his widow regent of the kingdom and the vote of the convention of states which confirmed that destination had expressly limited her authority to the condition of her remaining unmarried but notwithstanding this limitation a few months after her husband's death she espoused the earl of angus of the name of douglas a young nobleman of great family and promising hopes some of the nobility now proposed the electing of angus to the regency and recommended this choice as the most likely means of preserving peace with england but the jealousy of the great families and the fear of exalting the douglases begat opposition to this measure lord hume in particular the most powerful chieftain in the kingdom insisted on recalling the duke of albany son to a brother of james the third who had been banished into france and who having there married had left posterity that were the next heirs to the crown and the nearest relations to their young sovereign albany though first prince of the blood had never been in scotland was totally unacquainted with the manners of the people ignorant of their situation unpractised in their language yet such was the favour attending the french alliance and so great the authority of hume that this prince was invited to accept the reins of government francis careful not to give offence to the king of england detained albany some time in france but at length sensible how important it was to keep scotland in his interests he permitted him to go over and take possession of the regency he even renewed the ancient league with that kingdom though it implied such a close connection as might be thought somewhat to entrench on his alliance with england when the regent arrived in scotland he made inquiries concerning the state of the country and character of the people and he discovered a scene with which he was hitherto but little acquainted that turbulent kingdom he found was rather to be considered 
as a confederacy, and that not a close one, of petty princes than a regular system of civil polity, and even the king, much more a regent, possessed an authority very uncertain and precarious. Arms more than laws prevailed, and courage, preferably to equity or justice, was the virtue most valued and respected. The nobility, in whom the whole power resided, were so connected by hereditary alliances, or so divided by inveterate enmities, that it was impossible, without employing an armed force, either to punish the most flagrant guilt, or give security to the most entire innocence. Rapine and violence, when exercised on a hostile tribe, instead of making a person odious among his own clan, rather recommended him to their esteem and approbation, and by rendering him useful to the chieftain, entitled him to a preference above his fellows. And though the necessity of mutual support served as a close cement of amity among those of the same kindred, the spirit of revenge against enemies, and the desire of prosecuting the deadly feuds, so they were called, still appeared to be passions the most predominant among that uncultivated people. The persons to whom Albany, on his arrival, first applied for information with regard to the state of the country, happened to be inveterate enemies of Hume, and they represented that powerful nobleman as the chief source of public disorders, and the great obstacle to the execution of the law and the administration of justice. Before the authority of the magistrate could be established, it was necessary, they said, to make an example of this great offender, and, by the terror of his punishment, teach all lesser criminals to pay respect to the power of their sovereign. Albany, moved by these reasons, was induced to forget Hume's past services, to which he had in a great measure been indebted for the regency, and he no longer bore towards him that favourable countenance with which he was wont to receive him. Hume perceived the alteration, and was incited, both by regard to his own safety and from motives of revenge, to take measures in opposition to the regent. He applied himself to Angus and the Queen Dowager, and represented to them the danger to which the infant prince was exposed from the ambition of Albany, next heir to the crown, to whom the states had imprudently entrusted the whole authority of government. By his persuasion, Margaret formed the design of carrying off the young king and putting him under the protection of her brother, and when that conspiracy was detected, she herself, attended by Hume and Angus, withdrew into England, where she was soon after delivered of a daughter. Henry, in order to check the authority of Albany and the French party, gave encouragement to these malcontents, and assured them of his support. Matters being afterwards in appearance accommodated 
between Hume and the regent, that nobleman returned into his own country, but mutual suspicions and jealousies still prevailed. He was committed to custody under the care of the Earl of Arran, his brother-in-law, and was for some time detained prisoner in his castle. But having persuaded Arran to enter into the conspiracy with him, he was allowed to make his escape, and he openly levied war upon the regent. A new accommodation ensued, not more sincere than the foregoing, and Hume was so imprudent as to entrust himself, together with his brother, into the hands of that prince. They were immediately seized, committed to custody, brought to trial, condemned, and executed. No legal crime was proved against these brothers. It was only alleged that at the Battle of Flauder they had not done their duty in supporting the king, and as this backwardness could not, from the course of their past life, be ascribed to cowardice, it was commonly imputed to a more criminal motive. The evidence, however, of guilt produced against them was far from being valid or convincing, and the people, who hated them while living, were much dissatisfied with their execution. Such violent remedies often produce for some time a deceitful tranquillity, but as they destroy mutual confidence and beget the most inveterate animosities, their consequences are commonly fatal, both to the public and to those who have recourse to them. The regent, however, took advantage of the present calm which prevailed, and being invited over by the French king, who was at that time willing to gratify Henry, he went into France, and was engaged to remain there for some years. During the absence of the regent, such confusions prevailed in Scotland, and such mutual enmity, rapine, and violence among the great families, that that kingdom was for a long time utterly disabled, both from offending its enemies and assisting its friends. We have carried on the Scottish history some years beyond the present period, that as that country had little connection with the general system of Europe, we might be the less interrupted in the narration of those more memorable events which were transacted in the other kingdoms. It was foreseen that a young, active prince like Francis, and of so martial a disposition, would soon employ the great preparations which his predecessor before his death had made for the conquest of Milan. He had been observed even to weep at the recital of the military exploits of Gaston de Foix, and these tears of emulation were held to be sure presages of his future valour. He renewed the treaty which Louis had made with Henry, and having left everything secure behind him, he marched his armies towards the south of France, pretending that his sole purpose was to defend his kingdom against the incursions of the Swiss. This formidable people still retained their animosity against France, and, having taken Maximilian, 
Duke of Milan under their protection, and in reality reduced him to absolute dependence, they were determined, from views both of honor and of interest, to defend him against the invader. They fortified themselves in all those valleys of the Alps through which they thought the French must necessarily pass, and when Francis, with great secrecy, industry, and perseverance, made his entrance into Piedmont by another passage, they were not dismayed, but descended into the plain, though unprovided with cavalry, and opposed themselves to the progress of the French arms. At Marignan, near Milan, they fought with Francis one of the most furious and best contested battles that is to be met with in the history of these later ages, and it required all the heroic valor of this prince to inspire his troops with courage sufficient to resist the desperate assault of those mountaineers. After a bloody action in the evening, night and darkness parted the combatants but next morning the swiss renewed the attack with unabated ardor and it was not until they had lost all their bravest troops that they could be prevailed on to retire the field was strewed with twenty thousand slain on both sides and the marshal trevosio who had been present at eighteen pitched battles declared that every engagement which he had yet seen was only the play of children. The action of Marnian was a combat of heroes. After this great victory, the conquest of the Milanese was easy and open to Francis. The success and glory of the French monarch began to excite jealousy in Henry, and his rapid progress though in so distant a country, was not regarded without apprehensions by the English ministry. Italy was, during that age, the seat of religion, of literature, and of commerce. And as it possessed alone that luster which has since been shared out among other nations, it attracted the attention of all Europe, and every acquisition which was made there appeared more important than its weight in the balance of power was strictly speaking entitled to henry also thought that he had reason to complain of francis for sending the duke of albany into scotland and undermining the power and credit of his sister the queen dowager the repairing of the fortifications of terouen was likewise regarded as a breach of treaty but above all what tended to alienate the court of England was the disgust which Wolsey had entertained against the French monarch. Henry, on the conquest of Tournay, had refused to admit Louis Gaillard, the bishop-elect, to the possession of the temporalities, because that prelate declined taking the oath of allegiance to his new sovereign, and Wolsey was appointed, as above related, administrator of the bishopric as the cardinal wished to obtain the free and undisturbed enjoyment of this revenue he applied to francis and desired him to bestow on gaillart some see of equal value in france and to obtain his resignation of tournay francis 
who still hoped to recover possession of that city and who feared that the full establishment of wolsey in the bishopric would prove an obstacle to his purpose had hitherto neglected to gratify the haughty prelate and the bishop of tournay by applying to the court of rome had obtained a bull for his settlement in the sea wolsey who expected to be indulged in every request and who exacted respect from the greatest princes resented the slight put upon him by francis and he pushed his master to seek an occasion of quarrel with that monarch maximilian the emperor was ready to embrace every overture for a new enterprise especially if attended with an offer of money of which he was very greedy very prodigal and very indigent richard pace formerly secretary to cardinal bambridge and now secretary of state was dispatched to the court of vienna and had a commission to propose some considerable payments to maximilian he thence made a journey into switzerland and by like motives engaged some of the cantons to furnish troops to the emperor that prince invaded italy with a considerable army but being repulsed from before milan he retreated with his army into germany made peace with france and venice ceded verona to that republic for a sum of money and thus excluded himself in some measure from all future access into italy and henry found that after expending five or six hundred thousand ducats in order to gratify his own and the cardinal's humour he had only weakened his alliance with francis without diminishing the power of that prince there were many reasons which engaged the king not to proceed further at present in his enmity against france he could hope for assistance from no power in europe ferdinand his father-in-law who had often deceived him was declining through age and infirmities and a speedy period was looked for to the long and prosperous reign of that great monarch charles prince of spain sovereign of the low countries desired nothing but peace with francis who had it so much in his power if provoked to obstruct his peaceable accession to that rich inheritance which was awaiting him the pope was overawed by the power of france and venice was engaged in a close alliance with that monarchy henry therefore was constrained to remain in tranquillity during some time and seemed to give himself no concern with regard to the affairs of the continent in vain did maximilian endeavour to allure him into some expense by offering to make a resignation of the imperial crown in his favour the artifice was too gross to succeed even with a prince so little politic as henry and pace his envoy who was perfectly well acquainted with the emperor's motives and character gave him warning that the sole view of that prince in making him so liberal an offer was to draw money from him while a universal peace prevailed in europe that event happened which had so long been looked for and from which such important consequences were expected the death of ferdinand the catholic 
and the succession of his grandson Charles to his extensive dominions. The more Charles advanced in power and authority, the more was Francis sensible of the necessity he himself lay under of gaining the confidence and friendship of Henry, and he took at last the only method by which he could obtain success, the paying of court, by presents and flattery, to the haughty cardinal. Bonnivet, admiral of France, was dispatched to London, and he was directed to employ all his insinuation and address, qualities in which he excelled, to procure himself a place in Wolsey's good graces. After the ambassador had succeeded in his purpose, he took an opportunity of expressing his master's regret that, by mistakes and misapprehensions, he had been so unfortunate as to lose a friendship which he so much valued as that of his eminence. Wolsey was not deaf to these honourable advances from so great a monarch, and he was thenceforth observed to express himself on all occasions in favour of the French alliance. The more to engage him in his interests, Francis entered into such confidence with him that he asked his advice even in his most secret affairs, and had recourse to him in all difficult emergencies as to an oracle of wisdom and profound policy. The cardinal made no secret to the king of this private correspondence, and Henry was so prepossessed in favour of the great capacity of his minister, that he said he verily believed he would govern Francis as well as himself. When matters seemed sufficiently prepared, Bonnivet opened to the cardinal his master's desire of recovering Tournay, and Wolsey immediately, without hesitation, engaged to effect his purpose. He took an opportunity of representing to the king and council that Tournay lay so remote from Calais that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, in case of war, to keep the communication open between these two places, that as it was situated on the frontiers both of France and the Netherlands, it was exposed to attacks from both these countries, and must necessarily, either by force or famine, fall into the hands of the first assailant, that even in time of peace it could not be preserved without a large garrison to restrain the numerous and mutinous inhabitants ever discontented with the English government, and that the possession of Tournay, as it was thus precarious and expensive, so was it entirely useless, and afforded little or no means of annoying on occasion the dominions either of Charles or of Francis. These reasons were of themselves convincing, and were sure of meeting with no opposition when they came from the mouth of the cardinal. A treaty therefore was catered into for the seeding of Tournay, and in order to give to that measure a more graceful appearance, it was agreed that the Dauphin and the Princess Mary, both of them infants, should be betrothed, and that this city should be considered as the dowry of the princess. Such kinds of agreement were then common among sovereigns, 
though it was very rare that the interests and views of the parties continued so steady as to render the intended marriages effectual but as henry had been at considerable expense in building a citadel at tournay francis agreed to pay him six hundred thousand crowns at twelve annual payments and to put into his hands eight hostages all of them men of quality for the performance of the article and lest the cardinal should think himself neglected in these stipulations francis promised him a yearly pension of twelve thousand livres as an equivalent for his administration of the bishopric of tournay end of section twelve chapter twenty eight part one recording by cynthia moyer